Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. We get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. So the Russian invasion of Ukraine is now into its fifth month. The Russian ground advance got bogged down in the early stages, forcing the Russian military to alter their war plans to concentrate on southern Ukraine. We've seen some consolidation of Russian gains in southern Ukraine, but not much beyond that. Why? Well, some of the Russian military failures can be attributed to outright incompetence on the part of their officer corps. Russian logistics was uh, woefully inadequate to the mission. And also submit for your consideration the Russian military's understanding of joint operations may have been problematic. Ukraine has repeatedly asked for more capabilities to defend their airspace. With us today to discuss the lessons learned in the air war portion of this unnecessary conflict is someone who deeply understands the tactical, operational, and strategic implications of Russia's operations and the fight for control of the skies. He can also clarify for us some of the strategic planning for the U.S. Air Force to protect American national security interests for decades to come. Lieutenant General David Deptila currently serves as the dean of the Mitchell Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. General Deptila is a world-recognized leader and pioneer in conceptualizing, planning, and executing the full range of national security operations, everything from humanitarian relief to major combat operations. He was the principal attack planner for Operation Desert Storm's air campaign, commander of no-fly zone operations over Iraq in the late 1990s, director of the air campaign over Afghanistan in 2001, twice a joint task force commander, and he was the air commander for the 2005 South Asia Tsunami Relief Operations. He's also served on two congressional commissions charged with outlining America's future defense posture. General Deptilla is a fighter pilot with more than 3,000 flying hours, 400 of which were in combat, including multiple command assignments in the F-15. His last assignment was as the U.S. Air Force's first Chief of Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance, where he transformed America's military ISR and drone enterprises, orchestrating the largest increase in drone operations in Air Force history. He retired from the Air Force in 2010 after more than 34 years of distinguished service. At the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, General Deptila has been an impactful thought leader and prolific author. Lieutenant General David Deptila earned a BA and ME degrees from the University of Virginia and a Master of Science degree from the National War College. He's also a graduate of the Air Force's Fighter Weapons School. In addition to his duties as Dean of the Mitchell Institute, he is the Perot Risner Senior Military Scholar at the U.S. Air Force Academy, a board member at a variety of organizations, and an independent consultant. Lieutenant General David Deptila, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, thanks very much, John. It's great to, to, to be on with you and uh, look forward to our discussion. 
So I do have to make a little shout out uh, in your honor to the local Northfield community. Uh, Dave Brown, an air, uh, 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 a classmate of yours from early aviation training, uh, is a retired Delta uh, commercial airline pilot. He lives in the local community, and he called in very excited to hear that you were on the show with us today. Well, that's great that uh, Dave's on. Uh, good to hear from you, Dave, and uh, thanks for all your good work you did while you were in the service, as well as uh, flying for the airlines. Uh, General Deptilla, we, we have a lot to cover. Uh, I want to start with a little bit more on your personal background. Your last assignment as the, the A2, as we call it, on the Air Force staff. What was the catalyst for consolidating policy acquisition and other Title X function, functions for intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance under a single senior officer on the U.S. Air Force staff? Well, John, uh, in the spring of 2006... The Air Force had a new chief of staff, General Mike Buzz Mosley, and uh, I was out in the Pacific, and he told me he had something he wanted me to do. He <laughs> wanted me to return to the Pentagon from my position then, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as the commander of the Air Force Warfighting Headquarters in Pacific Air Forces to establish, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> to establish and lead the first three-star organization to direct, to direct Air Force intelligence. Now, the new position um, was originally designated the Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence. And like you said, it's called the A-2. Um, but Mosley recognized that we were moving into the information age, and as we did so, we needed an organization that could capitalize on new ways and means to elevate the importance of intelligence. And when he first told me this, um, you know, as a 30-year operator, I was a bit surprised. Uh, but it only took me about 10 seconds to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> because as an operator and a planner <clears throat> and a commander during wartime, I was a consummate user of intelligence. And, and so I was kind of a perfect fit to revitalize the intelligence function because I knew what operational commanders needed. I knew where the current Air Force intelligence enterprise was lacking. And so my first recommendation uh, to, to the chief was to expand the proposed organization and join intelligence with surveillance and reconnaissance. And so ergo the, the title ISR. <clears throat> and the chief agreed, and after we got congressional approval, um, the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance was, uh, was born. Uh, now, I, I could spend hours talking about <laughs> this particular job, but I'll just kind of summarize in that um, what I tried to do was transform ISR from a disparate set of functions that were spread across the Air Force with all kinds of legacy processes and procedures that dated back to the mid-20th century into an ISR enterprise, one that focused on providing information and knowledge in a rapid and usable fashion to meet the demands of the current time. And, and so I organized my efforts into three major areas, organization, capabilities, and personnel, uh, and emphasized the point that, you know, we spent the last hundred years um, as airmen, and quite frankly, um, across all the services, focusing on the finish 
part of the fine, fix, finish kill chain. And today, when you think about it, and back in 2006, we can hit any target anywhere on the face of the planet. We can do it day, night, all weather, uh, and with a degree of precision never before imagined. The question of importance is what effect do you want to create and what and where are the targets to achieve that effect? Yeah. So yeah. the focus of the effort on the kill chain needs to correspondingly shift to the find and fix portion. And, and so that's kind of what I focus my time on and uh, then codified <clears throat> these efforts and plans into strategic plans and documents for both ISR and the Air Force as well as uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones. And that's still a blueprint that the Air Force is using today. Yeah. Very successful. Very successful. That, that, that idea of combining all of those capabilities under one hat, including the, I guess, the acquisition side, uh, really streamlined the process for the services. I know the Navy adopted something very similar uh, to what you established as the first Air Force A-2. So, General, you're now at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Could you tell our listeners about the Mitchell Institute? What is it you and your team do at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies? Well, happy to do so, John, and appreciate the opportunity. Um, <clears throat> our vision is to realize the value of aerospace power in achieving America's security interests. Our mission, if you will, is to educate about aerospace power's contribution to America's global interests, inform the policy and budget deliberations that go on here in the inside the Beltway in the DC area, and cultivate the next generation of policy leaders who understand how to exploit the advantages of operating in the third dimension of air and space. And, <clears throat> excuse me, that we kind of codified our mission into objectives, <clears throat> which is to educate about aerospace power, to inform the national security debate, and then to cultivate aerospace-minded talent. And so that kind of gives you an overall perspective. <clears throat> how we do that is done through a variety of visible and concrete means. We've got a series of Mitchell Institute reports that we do, studies we conduct, and policy papers. And we work really hard to provide independent, objective, and sound analysis to outline the right solutions uh, <clears throat> to protect our nation from the aerospace demand domain. And uh, we publish between 15 to 20 of these studies uh, per year. We engage with the media um, for sort of the go-to think tank for aerospace-related issues. Um, last year, we had over 10,000 direct media citations, and uh, that's growing this year. Uh, we've got a growing following on social media, national and international television, um, BBC, NBC, CNN, Fox. We, we hit them all. We're an apolitical organization. It's all about defense, um, not a particular party. Um, <clears throat> we hit major news publications, Washington Post, Forbes, New York Times, and so on and so forth. And then we run a, a video series called The Aerospace Nation that consists a lot like what you're doing today, and that's conducting discussions with key air and space leaders on critical uh, defense issues, uh, we recently uh, stood up a podcast series 
Uh, got over 10,000 down, I'm sorry, 100,000 downloads the last wow. six months. And we host a whole bunch of annual events um, with offerings that address air power, space, and nuclear deterrence issues. So the bottom line is the Mitchell Institute provides the means to advocate and uh, educate on the virtues and values that airspace and cyber power provide our nation. So the Mitchell Institute's title includes the term aerospace. With the new U.S. Space Force building out now, what role is the Mitchell Institute playing in advising or otherwise assisting the nation's newest military service? Oh, well, thanks for that question, John. The short answer is a lot. <laughs> okay. um, last year, I uh, stood up what we call the Space Power Advantage Center of Excellence Um and if you take a look at that word, we the acronym is SPACE, S-P-A-C-E, so that works out nicely, uh, here inside the Mitchell Institute. And, <clears throat> pardon me, um, and we stood up a chair that provides oversight for this organization, and that chair is occupied by retired uh, General Kevin Chilton. Uh, General Chilton's a former uh Air Force Space Command commander. He's a three-time astronaut uh, flying the space shuttle uh, and a former commander of U.S. Strategic Command. And so he provides a lot of gravitas to our organization and insight, and is doing tremendously well in terms of generating valuable products and research that supports the new U.S. Space Force, uh, U.S. Space Command and the space industry. And uh, again, a couple of examples of how we do that is direct engagement with the U.S. Space Force and Space Command senior leadership. Uh, we host a series of uh, what we call Shriver uh, Space Power Forums uh, in, in talking with people, uh, Space Power policy paper publications, uh, editorials, and uh, media engagement um, as well. So trying to focus, uh, the, uh, get people to understand the importance of space. Uh, and you know, it's not just about weather satellites. Um, people tend to take for granted the fact that um, you couldn't get gas from a gas station without space because the timing signal for all those pumps comes through space as well as the authentic authentication uh, for your credit cards that you pay for it with. Uh, not to mention, you know, those uh, telephone calls that go through comm satellites, the weather that um, uh, predicts so accurately what's going to happen and so on and so forth. So defending those capabilities and preventing our adversaries from interfering with them is a big job, and that's why we stood up the new Space Force. Yeah, we, we've uh, we've done a couple of shows this uh, this year. In fact, earlier this year on on policy related discussions about space, uh, we'll also be doing a, a couple of shows a little bit later this year in August on uh, space systems command and space operations command. We'll have two different guests on from those two different organizations, uh, so our listeners can uh, learn a little bit a little bit more about the U.S. Space Force. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General David Deptula, who currently serves as the dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Uh, General Deptula, let's get into our discussion now about lessons we're learning from the air war over Ukraine. And let's begin with the Russian side of this. 
What have what have you seen in the way of Russian air operations? Uh, what are they what are they doing, or or should, maybe we should say attempting to do? Uh, and how are they doing it, and are they succeeding in their air campaign? Well, um, it, it's a uh, a really interesting topic because, quite frankly, the Russian Air Force has not been performing as expected. Specifically, and most importantly, they've not achieved air superiority over the battle space. And why, for your listeners, why air superiority is important is because when you have control of the air, which essentially is what air superiority means, that gives one the freedom from attack as well as the freedom to attack. And without it, a combatant simply cannot win. So it's a good thing that the Russians are having difficulty. But the Ukrainians don't necessarily have air superiority either. So it's a contested uh, air environment. Um, That said, uh, early on, Ukrainian air defenses um, were not disabled by Russian air attacks. Uh, Ukrainian airfields were not put out of action either. Um, And surprisingly, um, Russia did not effectively integrate electronic warfare, cyber operations, or space operations into their air attacks. And as a result, the Russian objective to isolate um, seize uh, the capital, uh, Kyiv, and rapidly collapse the Ukrainian government failed. And they were forced to withdraw and regroup. Now, I believe there are a combination of reasons for the Russian Air Force's poor showing uh, in Ukraine. First, the lack of experience on the part of the Russian Air Force pilots and leadership. Second, the poor leadership and absence of planning by the Russian military. And here I think it's key to understand that the Russians never developed their air forces to achieve strategic attacks or capitalize on air power to achieve decisive effects. The Russian Air Force has predominantly been used to support Russian ground operations. And as a result, you've got Russian army generals who are in charge of dictating Russian air operations. And frankly, that's a recipe for disaster. Now, it's good from the Ukraine's uh, (laughs) perspective. But then the other part, the the third element, I think, is either lack of or poor performance of the weapons used by the Russian Air Force. I mean, we've seen multiple cases of weapons gone awry uh, and unfortunately uh, hitting a lot of civilian targets. Now, those have not all been accidents, and I'll talk about that in a second. But all three of these elements combined are a formula for less than optimal conditions or operations. And I think it's uh, the key reason for the continued competition between the Ukrainian and Russian air forces for air superiority over uh, over Ukraine. Um, Now, if you'd like, I I can go into a little bit more on uh, where we are today. Um, the, The Russians have improved. They've learned, and you know, this is what happens. I mean, this this conflict's been going on for over five months now, and uh, the the air war today, it it is following the pattern of preceding weeks, um, with the Russians conducting short range strikes using fighters, and their air force escalating its cruise missile bombardment um, that 
frankly appears now to largely involve repurposed anti-ship missiles. Um, after seeing a large portion of their supersonic air-to-surface cruise missiles launched at uh, Odessa and other uh, cities killed by Ukrainian surface-to-air S-300 missiles, <clears throat> the Russians changed their tactics and now they're attempting to saturate the Ukrainian air defenses with salvo launches of up to 10 missiles at a time. And so you, you see them using their bombers uh, to launch missiles outside of Ukrainian territory to avoid Ukrainian air defenses. Uh, but then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, because of their inaccuracy, uh, many of these missiles have uh, impacted civilian housing. And it is what I mentioned earlier. I, I believe the numbers of Ukrainian hospitals directly targeted by the Russians is over 100, and the number of schools directly targeted is over 175. And then, of course, there's literally thousands of apartments and houses intentionally destroyed by the Russians. These are all violations of the laws of international armed conflict and war crimes, and hopefully they'll be fully prosecuted uh, by uh, appropriate uh, appropriate uh, uh, courts. Courts. So, even though it's been over five months since the invasion, um, Russia's not managed to impose full supremacy in the air. Um, it's lost uh, its pride, warship at sea, Moscow. and it's lost at least 800 tanks. Yeah. Which, to put that in comparison. That corresponds to the entire armored force of the United Kingdom, France, Germany, and Italy combined. So um, they're not doing really sterling, but <laughs> they have lots of manpower and weapons, uh, old World War II style artillery that they're throwing into the fight. So how about the Ukrainian side of this uh, equation? What are we seeing from the Ukrainians in their uh, air operations? I know the NATO alliance has given the Ukrainian military thousands of Stinger uh, manned portable surface-to-air missiles, and I've read reports that Ukrainians have shot down a, a significant number of Russian tactical jets and, and helicopters. What, what's the real story here? How successful have the Ukrainians been in defending the skies against Russian air power? Well... The Ukrainian forces, to the contrary of the Russian forces, um, or at least your average soldier in the, on the battlefield, are highly motivated. Um, Ukrainian defenders were able to hold their ground. Uh, Ukrainian reserves and civilians rapidly mobilized. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, according to figures released by Ukraine, they claim about 35,000 Russians have died, um, and that was as of late June. Just to put that in context, that's more losses than the Russians experienced in 10 years of operations in Afghanistan. Uh, now, regardless of all of that, this past Monday, Putin celebrated the Russian seizure of uh, Luhansk's uh, regional border and appeared to direct the Russian military to conduct an operational pause uh, before resuming an assault on the rest of the Donbass area. But back to the Ukrainians, um, you know, the Ukrainian Air Force in particular is benefiting from the sharing of information from a variety of sources on the disposition of Russian forces, whether it be on the ground, at sea, or in the air. And this information sharing has given them momentum uh, and 
frankly, it's allowed them to deny the Russians air superiority as well as to degrade their surface-to-air missile systems. Uh, <clears throat> contrary to the Russians, the Ukrainian Air Force is doing much better than expected. Um, however, it, here's, there's always a however when it comes <laughs> to conflict. The Ukrainian Air Force uh, is going to run into sustainment challenges. Sure. Uh, sortie generation is going to become a problem due to maintenance demands and weapons expenditures require resupply. Uh, now, you, the you, Ukrainian uh, military has stated the need for F-15s and F-16s to replace our Soviet-era Air Force as our legacy fighter force is becoming non-viable. And here's why that's happening. There's attrition losses that have reduced the size of their Air Force, leaving insufficient numbers to perform both defensive and offensive roles. Um, the reduced fleet numbers then drive up the flying load on the remaining aircraft, and that presents additional maintenance challenges that prevents availability. Uh, then there's a finite pool of available spare parts and guided munitions uh, these are then going to be consumed soon without replacements. So unless Ukraine acquires a replacement fighter force of Western origin in the coming months, it's going to lose the ability to defend its airspace and uh, support its uh, ground forces. Now, the obstacles to the supply of these aircraft that, oh, by the way, they're surplus to the United States Air Force. It, the, these, these obstacles are wholly political. Mm -hmm. uh, and it appears centered in the National Security Council and their policy of appeasing Russia to the extent permitted by current politics. For example, both the president and the secretary of defense have said that they're doing everything they can to support Ukraine, when in fact they're not. They're not sending fighter aircraft and associated weapons that could effectively counter Russian command and control, logistics, and the artillery um, that is just leading to the scorched earth tactics that the Russians are conducting. So that, that's something that needs to be seriously considered and accomplished uh, if Ukraine's gonna survive. So I wanna ask you, you, you commanded some no-fly zones. The Ukrainians have advocated for uh, establishing a no-fly zone over their nation and uh, asking for NATO to help enforce that. Uh, can you tell us about the complexity of trying to put in place that kind of an operation? Uh, what it takes to sustain it and the challenges of establishing such a zone in, in this particular war. It's, it's a little different to, to do a, a no-fly zone over, over northern or southern Iraq uh, than it is to do something where, where NATO might come right up against uh, Russian air power trying to achieve their military objectives inside of uh, Ukrainian airspace. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, that situation? Yeah, um First, no-fly zone, uh, we made them look so easy in northern <laughs> and southern Iraq and then in Bosnia and Herzegovina and yeah. in, in Kosovo that people just took them for granted. They, they thought it was like you flip a switch and all of a sudden, uh, you know, the bad guys stopped flying over the, the area of interest. That's absolutely not the case. Um, a a no-fly zone means that uh, you know, if an adversary attempts to fly in that airspace, they'll be shot down. And oh, by the way, it's not just about the airplanes 
that they fly over that airspace. If, you know, I'm up there in my F-15 like I was flying over northern Iraq, um, and they try to shoot me down with a surface-to-air missile system, or even threaten me by using their radar to illuminate my aircraft, um, that's an act of aggression. Um, and we, we then respond to those ground sites and eliminate them. So, uh, you know, no-fly zone operations um, uh, are really uh, war in a different name, uh, all right? And if you look at the situations in which we had no-fly zones over Iraq, a condition of war already existed. Mm -hmm. So this is not some antiseptic thing that, uh, you know, you flip a switch and, and they don't participate. You know, one of the, the, the NATO and U.S. stipulations is, look, we're going to help Ukraine, but we're not going to personally get involved in using our forces in direct conflict with the Russians. Um, because that, that, that leads to a situation where you're fighting a war between the United States, NATO, and Russia. That's essentially what would have happened if um, we'd established a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, by the way, those Russian surface-to-air missile systems were inside Russia. Right. So that would have meant that we would be attacking no fly or, uh, missile sites uh, on Russian territory. Uh, now, all of that said, just from getting your audience to understand that you know, no-fly no zone is a situation that will result in conflict, in direct conflict between uh, combatants. It is no, uh, no easy operation in the context of logistics. Um, and by the way, you have to define what, how are you going to establish this no-fly zone? Is it going to be over the entire area of Ukraine? Is it going to be for 24, uh, 7, you know, all day, all night, all the time? Um, that's not the way we conducted no-fly zone operations uh, previously. Um, we would do it periodically, a couple times a week, a couple days a week, uh, or for particular time frames. Um, and then we'd show up uh, at random times so the adversary wouldn't know um, when we were there. Uh, well, those time horizons uh, will dictate the logistics needs um, for uh, the forces. Uh, and many people tend to forget about that. I mean, we're talking about to, to do a no-fly zone over Ukraine would require literally hundreds of aircraft to be on the ready and completely dedicated to this operation. Uh, and, and so it is no small task, uh, and it would lead directly to conflict between NATO and Russia, and that's something that we wanted to avoid and, yeah. uh, and, and still do. And, so, and look, we got, willing, we got willing pilots with competent leadership inside Ukraine um, and essentially, that's what they're trying to do is to protect their nation uh, by keeping the Russians out and achieving air superiority. That's what a no-fly zone is all about. So we got to be careful with the terminology. 
Let's go back to that uh, that topic of providing the Ukrainians with uh, with excess jets, uh, either U.S. or or other NATO allies. Uh, which what aircraft would they be able to adapt to the pilots quickly enough uh, that they could uh, almost kind of learn on the fly and still be effective going up against the Russian uh, air force? Is there is that a sound way to do it, or or are providing the Ukrainians with something? Uh, maybe a little less technically oriented, like the surface-to-air missile systems that uh, that have been discussed now, uh, more than just the Stinger man pads, something that can reach a little higher into the sky. Uh, is that a better way, or do we want to do both? Do we want to provide them with uh, excess fighter aircraft and surface-to-air missile systems to have them sort of take back control of their own airspace to prevent the Russians from succeeding in supporting their ground operations? Well, that's a great question, John. Let me elaborate a little bit. Um... You know, as I mentioned earlier, Ukraine has stated their need for F-15s and F-16s to replace their Air Force because, quite frankly, their Soviet-era fighter force is becoming non-viable. I gave you the reasons for why before, so I won't uh, um, repeat that, but um, it it is a mix of both what are called air defense weapons, surface-to-air missiles, but at the same time, um, you, you know, those don't work in all situations, and you want to provide their air force. Remember I talked about that air superiority provides the ability, the freedom from attack as well as the freedom to attack. Mm-hmm. So part of how Ukraine's going to succeed is th- they've got to put the Russians that are occupying their territory on defense, and a way to do that is with air power. Uh, now, Congress recently approved the retirement of uh, 48 F-15C Eagles and 47 F-16C Vipers from the U.S. Air Force this year, 2022. Okay. And these aircraft provide creditable short-term substitutes for what would sort of be the ultimate aircraft for them. That's a F-15EX Eagle II uh, that have uh, greater strike capabilities. Uh, but it's critical that these aircraft and their ground support equipment uh, be made available uh, in a matter of weeks. And you mentioned time to, you know, train their pilots. Um, the Ukrainian Air Force consists of some incredibly competent fighter pilots. Um, they are very familiar with the F-15. Your audience might not know this. But the California Air National Guard, the 144th Fighter Wing, has been doing exchange uh, visits to Ukraine for decades now, going back to the early 2000s. So the Ukrainian Air Force is very familiar with the F-15. Uh, just like any fighter pilot, you what, what they need to do in terms of training, this isn't, they're not, we, what would be involved is not taking someone who's never flown a fighter before and putting them into a fighter, yeah, that would take about a year to do yeah. nominally. But if you're going from flying a Su-27 to an F-15, um, we're talking about four to six weeks. Okay. Eight weeks at the max, and they'd be competent to fly those airplanes capably. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the reason it's important is the F-15C... Um, has a radar that can provide a wide range of air-to-air and air-to-ground modes 
that outranges all known and expected Russian fighter radars. Well, that's critical capability so that the Ukrainians can engage beyond visual range uh, and shoot down the Russians. Um, the F-16s um, can provide anti-radiation missile capability to destroy um, the enemy air defenses uh, and their integrated air defense radars. Uh, they can also carry anti-ship cruise missiles for maritime sea control operations over the Black Sea uh, and perhaps open up the Russian blockade so they can now transport grain. Uh, another weapon that fits well to the challenges posed by the Russians is the uh, AGM-65 Maverick air-to-surface missile. Uh, and uh, it, it's got all kinds of capabilities. Now, the obstacles to the supply of these aircraft uh, are, as I mentioned earlier, um, the, it's sort of a, a, the, the the president, secretary of defense, national security team, uh, you know, they, they have been deterred by Russian rhetoric, frankly, and that's unfortunate. Um, on the other hand, I understand the importance of taking into consideration um, escalation uh, in what might lead to uh, unwanted uh, uh, situation in terms of face-off between the Russians and the United States and NATO. Uh, but remember, it's the Russians that invaded Ukraine. And people, you'll hear some people in the United States um, talking about, well, you know, the difference between offensive and defensive weapons. <laughs> There's no such thing as an offensive or a defensive weapon. A weapon is a weapon, and how it's used it will determine what is offensive and defensive. Since the Ukrainians were invaded by the Russians, every weapon and application of weapon that the Ukrainians use to eject the Russians from their sovereign territory is a defensive use of the weapon. Yeah. So we need to get over this nonsense of, well, there's offensive. These are fighters are too offensive. No, they're not. Uh, so just a couple of points for your consideration. Great points, sir. Great points. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General David Deptilo, who currently serves as the dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Uh, General, we have about 20 minutes left on our show, uh, so we're in our last segment uh, for today. Let me ask you this. As someone who's worked with, uh, at the highest levels of national security and defense planning, what lessons— should the United States military be learning right now from the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I would imagine you see lessons at the tactical, operational, and even at the strategic level. Uh, what would, you, would you care to share your thoughts on these different levels of operations and what we're learning? Yeah, uh, great question, John. Um, while some, are at the, some of the lessons you mentioned are at the tactical and operational levels, and I'll identify those, um, the ones most important are at the strategic level. So here are some potential lessons to explore. First, um, at the strategic level, did President Biden's rhetoric play into Putin's hands um, with Biden telling him exactly what he would not do? Mm. And I quote, let me be clear, the president said, 
our forces are not engaged and will not engage in conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine, unquote. Well, that's a pretty big strategic error on the president's part. Declaring that no U.S. forces or troops will be used in defense of Ukraine removed any uncertainty on Putin's part of the U.S. as a complicating element in his decision calculus to invade in the first place. Uh, so was it a mistake to make that declaration so obvious, even if the decision was as it is, not to directly use U.S. forces? There was no need to remove what could have been a deterrent factor so early. Uh, and perhaps that mistake should never be repeated again. Again, I, I'm not suggesting that any U.S. forces, I, I think the policy is a good one. But you don't tell your adversary that that's what you're going to do. The answer is, well, I don't know. It depends. <laughs> it, it, it depends. Yeah. And, and create that uncertainty in his mind. Second, the impact of commercial space-based intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Oh, yeah. Now, this is more of a tactical level issue, but it's got strategic implications. Optical and signals intelligence information is now readily available to anyone who has a credit card and access to the internet. That now gives anyone insights that a decade ago were only available to major nation states with sovereign spacecraft. What's available today commercially was top secret, special compartmented information <laughs> just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And information's only gonna get more accessible. Third, at the operational level, we're hearing postulations of the end of the age of heavy armored warfare. If you look at what's happened, slow-moving armored vehicles channelized along a handful of highways and roads are sitting ducks for man-portable guarded, guided anti-armor munitions, armed drones, and airstrikes. And so we're already seeing comparisons of armor advocates to the battleship admirals before World War II who refused to see the importance of carrier aviation or Major General uh, Air who was the last U.S. Army Chief of Cavalry, who continued to insist on the relevance of the horse on the battlefield even <laughs> after the Nazi blitzkriegs against Poland and France. Now, I would tell you the question that must be addressed before one buries the tank is this. Is there a continued role for mobile protected lethality on the battlefields of the future? And if the answer is yes, uh, then the next action in the ongoing issue of of how to protect the tank is to enable it to do what only it can do. And given the events of the day, this question's gotta be obje addressed objectively and urgently. Now, an interesting uh, turn of events here is, and your audience may not know this, but the United States Marine Corps has already ruled on this subject and they've eliminated all their tanks. Yeah. I don't see the U.S. Army doing the same because they've got over 8,000 tanks in their inventory. So now a, a similar point's also being made for naval surface ships. Now notice I say surface ships, uh, submarines still pretty effective. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, we need to buy more of them. But the notion of Ukraine's military, the veritable underdog in the fight, bringing down the Moskva yeah. 
the warship named for Russia's capital city was not only a strategic victory, but a symbolic one. Mm-hmm. Because the last time a warship of this size was sunk was World War II. And the event prompted U.S. naval observers to act. If you can, Ukraine could sink a flagship vessel with a cruise missile, how well would American ships do in a similar situation, for example, against China? China's got a panoply of anti-ship weapons that most likely can overwhelm the anti-missile defenses of surface action groups in the range of these weapons. Now, the answer is complex, and there are a few reasons it may be apples to oranges to compare the Moskva and ships in the U.S. Navy's current surface force. First, because the designs are much different. Uh, Second, the air defense of U.S. Navy ships is much more extensive than the Moskva and other Soviet ships. And the crews themselves are also key factors in whether a ship can overcome an attack. Just like the other domains, training is a key factor where the Russians simply don't match the U.S. and our allies. Next point I wanted to offer is that at an operational level, uh, is that we're seeing proof of the need for fifth generation, what's called fifth generation combat air forces. Russ has shifted to operating its fourth generation fighters at low altitudes to avoid Ukraine's S-300s. And while this makes them vulnerable uh, to man-portable missile attacks, like those stingers you mentioned, a larger point is fourth-generation fighters are at high risk of being intercepted by even Cold War-era SAM surface-to-air missile systems. So imagine trying to fight in areas covered by more advanced S-400s, 500s, and Chinese HQ-29s. Low observable or stealth fighters and bombers significantly reduce our probability of detection, and that increases the probability of their survivability. And here's another one at a strategic level. Um, the outcome of the war is the one outcome of the war is that's evidence is is the need for increased attention on missile defenses. Mm. And this is both from a conventional as well as a nuclear defense option. A fundamental component of nuclear deterrence strategy since 1949 has been the leaders of the states possessing nuclear weapon capabilities are rational actors. Right. What if that's not the case? You know, people have talked about uh, Putin has been so isolated uh, that he believes uh, what in fact is not real. Um, so is ballistic missile defense the only logical solution? And will we see a resurgence in interest in robust uh, ballistic missile defenses um, as a result? And uh, another one your audience might find of interest is the Russia-Ukraine war is seeing proof of the need to build up our own precision guided munition stocks. And this is kind of a tactical level issue, but again, it has strategic implications. Sure. Um, Russia's running out of uh, precision guided missiles. And that's why they're reverting to old direct attack weapons and Cold War era bombing tactics. If you look at a major regional conflict between NATO or the United States and either Russia or China, we'd likely see on the order of 100,000, if not more, aim points. 
For that comparison, Desert Storm is on the order of 40 to 50,000 aim points. We simply do not have the precision guided munition inventory to do that today. Uh, and, and, and that along with replacing the JDAM or Joint Direct Attack Munition is a standard US uh, precision weapon with a more modern bomb is, is imperative. Um, so in the interest of time, let me wrap it up there because I know you got a couple other questions here I want to get to. Yeah, there's just two more, really. Uh, this is sort of a big one. You, you mentioned it yourself, uh, the challenge of, uh, of China. Uh, you also talked about the, the benefits of maybe having a little strategic ambiguity on, <laughs> on where you stand on a particular situation. We've had somewhat uh, strategic ambiguity on the Taiwan issue with China that, that may be off the table now. But you're a strategic thinker, and the Mitchell Institute looks at a wide range of challenges. Uh, and I think probably the greatest challenge facing the U.S. military right now is the growing capability of China. They've leapfrogged ahead very quickly in fielding fifth-generation fighters, uh, maybe ahead of the United States possibly in artificial <laughs> intelligence applications, potentially in other areas as well, hypersonics, robotics, we just don't really know. What lessons do you think China is learning from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Are, are those lessons also at the tactical, operational, and strategic level for China? Well, John, another great question. Um, let me answer that in the context of what I call the big rocks of the takeaways from the uh, uh, Ukraine issue to date. Um, and I have four of them. Uh, but before I jump into those, as you're asking that, I thought of another one. Yeah, <laughs> the Chinese are leaping ahead in terms of fifth gen aircraft, in terms of artificial intelligence. In, firms, in terms of cyber, robotics, hypersonics. And you know why? Because they send all of their population to the United States to get educated. And I say all of it, not all of it, but you know, how many people in the United States know that almost 50% of all of the undergraduate majors in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in all the U.S. universities are from China, 49%. What in God's name are we doing educating the Chinese? And they go back to their country and they capitalize on the U.S. education system. That's a topic for another one of your issues. Um, you know, would we have provided uh, 50% of the, uh, our capacity to train STEM students uh, to the Russians in the mid-1980s? I don't think so. We wouldn't have given them visas. Uh, okay, let me go back to my big rocks. First, on weapons assistance. Rapid supply of weapons that matter to Ukraine is critical to their survival. And there's a corollary here for U.S. support to Taiwan to deter PRC aggression. Unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, since Russia invaded Ukraine, Putin's rhetoric has done more to deter action by the U.S. and NATO to assist Ukraine than the U.S. and NATO has done to deter Putin. And examples abound. The public debacle of the Pentagon rationalizing away the value of getting MiG-29s to Ukraine early on. The reluctance to send MQ-1 uh, uh, predators and MQ-9 reapers to Ukraine, excusing the Russians' ICBM test 
after the U.S. canceled a routine ICBM test, citing the desire to avoid any miscalculation that could lead to escalation. It's time for the U.S. to reverse this situation by providing the Ukrainians more advanced tools that they need to fight and win. Um, I had hoped that the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State visit to Ukraine might finally see the situation changing, but it hasn't. Of course, the U.S. and NATO should be cautious, but they have to stop rationalizing their lack of weapons transfer that make a difference by saying it might be risky or dangerous. I talked about how weapons are neither offensive or defensive. It's how they're used that determines which. Um, Russia invaded Ukraine, not the other way around. So everything the Ukrainians are doing is defensive. Now, while the administration should be commended for what it's done so far, it's really not enough because of what I just said. Um, We've given Ukraine 20 1970s-era Soviet helicopters. Really? 126 howitzers and eight rocket launchers and a month's worth of ammunition. That won't cut it relative to the tens of thousands of Russians attacking. By the way, U.S. officials need to stop citing the dollar amount of the equipment that's been given, they've been giving them as if that has any meaning. It's the effects of the weapons that are being delivered that's important, not what they cost. Uh, the bottom line is it's now critical to get more powerful weaponry to Ukraine uh, to prepare for the Russians' next onslaught and defeat his forces and push him out. Okay, next big rock, the response to the Russians' use of nuclear weapons. With the war in Ukraine, the nuclear weapons issues returned as a central one. The problem is, America has spent the last three decades putting nuclear weapons into their own box. And hence, we're behind the ball on thinking of how to deal with an increasingly desperate foe who sees nuclear weapons not as a final instrument, but as part of his broader orchestra. Um, you know, the actions of the administration in deferring to Putin for fear of his use of nuclear weapons is sending the message to every potential adversary that they should acquire nuclear weapons as rapidly as possible. So U.S. submission to Russian nuclear threats is encouraging nuclear proliferation, not discouraging it. And we're seeing that with China's rapid buildup of ICBMs today. They're no longer just retaining a relatively small number. They're seeking equity with both U.S. and Russian ICBM inventories. Yeah, three, 300, remember, 300 new uh, silos in western China, I think, is what they're building right now, the Chinese are, as, right. as part of a, new, a strategic deterrent. Exactly. Now, the other point, it's important to understand... Is the risk of escalations ever present regardless of what actions the West takes to support Ukraine? Putin's already shown that he'll manufacture a pretext when his adversaries are too smart to give him one. <laughs> okay, let me go on to, again, I'm watching the clock too. So Yeah, we got five minutes left. <laughs> yeah, what about the implications for the new U.S. national security strategy? The Pentagon's new national defense strategy was sent over to Congress in classified form a couple months ago. It's likely to be significantly altered because of this Russian-Ukraine war, or certainly should be. Consider that Putin's endgame is not simply to reintegrate Ukraine with Russia, but nothing short of an imperialist remaking of Europe 
to take control of much of the former Soviet space and establish a new Russian empire. Um, so several European policymakers have said that their current calculations are shaped by two major factors. The first is the expectation that any truce in Ukraine is likely to be temporary. Even if Putin agrees to lay down arms for the moment, many Europeans believe he's going to seek to regroup, rebuild the military, and attack once again. The second is a deep horror at the Russian military atrocities against civilians. And many believe, and rightfully so, that Putin should face war crime charges in front of international um, uh, uh, courts. Um, and, and, and frankly, I think he's reached a turning point. Uh, he can no longer be allowed to stay in power. Yeah. Now, finally, the last big rock, and that's strategic implications for U.S. national security. Um, so let me wrap this up with a couple of comments. I'd offer that Putin's hubris is assumption that victory would be quick and consequent undersizing and under-resourcing of his invasion force is a cautionary tale for the U.S. In other words, are we making similar assumptions in our own planning? We keep saying that we're the best military in the world, but we seem to ignore the fact that the U.S. military is half the size it was when we won in Desert Storm in 91. We only have the capacity to fight one major regional contingency today, uh, and our national defense strategy is much more demanding. It, it talks about both Russia, China as pure uh, 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 adversaries within the possibility of contingencies that could pop up anytime in North Korea and Iran. So from a strategic perspective, what's at play here is the capacity of the United States to deter conflict is significantly eroded over the past 30 years. And that's why Putin took the actions that he did. The Russian action should be a wake-up call to rebuild the U.S. military. President Xi of China could easily do the same thing in the South China Sea. So uh, let me wrap it up by saying that, you know, we, we have become much, much weaker than people anticipate that we are. And it's important to recognize that while people will argue over guns versus butter, the preamble of our Constitution states that the federal government was established, quote, to provide for the common defense and subsequently to promote the general welfare. It's not the other way around. So it's absolutely crucial to realize that the only thing more expensive than a first-rate military is a second-rate military. And with that, I'll give you the final word. <laughs> uh, we have, co unfortunately, come to the end of our show today. Uh, Lieutenant General David Deptila, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a really enlightening, very, very interesting show. Uh, your expertise uh, definitely uh, showed through today. I think all of our listeners will appreciate having uh, having heard from you. If our listeners wanted to learn more about the Mitch Mitchell Institute, where would they find that information? Well, all you need to do is go online and Google a Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. You'll pop up to our website, and all the content is very evident there. Thanks. All right. Thank you, sir. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. Here We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 of FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week. 
a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.